This morning we begin a study in the Gospel of Mark. And as we approach it, I want to consider what this year has been. This year, 2017, has been dubbed the year of the superhero. To my account, there have been approximately a dozen movies released this year that one could categorize as superhero movies. When you got those kind of on the fray of it, uh, you know, Transformers, I don't know if that's a superhero movie. Uh, it, it very well could be. Um, but if you take the top six superhero movies that are definitely superhero movies in no particular order, we have Justice League, Thor, Ragnarok, Wonder Woman, Logan, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and Spider-Man Homecoming, the fourth reboot in the last 15 years. Um, those top six have combined to gross $4 billion worldwide. That's more than any other year for superhero movies. These six movies, now I've seen a couple of them, and I know there were a couple of them were pretty good. But no offense to these movies, none of them are particularly groundbreaking. Um, so what explains these, what explains $4 billion? Well, we could say a lot of things. For one, we love heroes. We love a good protagonist. In fact, I get frustrated when I'm reading a story or watching a movie, and there are so many characters, I can't even tell who the main guy is. In an interview with USA Today, Ben Affleck, who plays Batman in Justice League, explains the superhero genre's success this way. He says, part of the appeal of this genre is wish fulfillment. Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who could save us from all this? Save us from ourselves? Save us from the consequences of our actions? and save us from people who are evil? Boy, he touched a nerve, didn't he? <laughs> and I don't think he even is aware of the depths of what he's actually saying. So what explains a $4 billion year for superhero movies? Well, in part, Ben Affleck says, it's an appeal to people's desire to be saved to be saved from themselves, to be saved from the consequences of their actions, to be saved from evil. And so in the midst of that longing emerges real good news. And the good news is not of a mutant teenager or a billionaire who dresses like a bat. This good news is the one of whom Mark tells in his book. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we open in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and verses 1 to 13. I invite you to turn there in your Bible or follow along as it's printed in your bulletin. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Mark knows the importance of setting the stage when beginning a story. Indeed, if we were to characterize Mark's stage in his drama or his book, it would be a very minimalist stage. It wouldn't be a big set. Because Mark wants us to focus in on the protagonist. He wants us to focus in on Jesus, to clear out all the other distractions, and to present him in a succinct, fast-paced, action-packed way. Ultimately, he wants his readers to wrestle with a question that's going to be asked in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Who then is this Jesus? Who then is this Jesus? So just like Mark knows the importance of setting the stage, so do we. Because if we're going to understand this book well, we have to understand some preliminary things about it. And we've hinted at a couple things already. We've hinted at who wrote this book. We've hinted at how Mark wrote this book, and we've hinted at why Mark has written this book. So to go into it in a little more detail, the author is John Mark, and we discover him later in the New Testament to be hanging around the big names of his day. So in the book of Acts, you have Paul and Barnabas going on these missionary journeys, spreading the gospel. And who comes with them? Mark. He accompanies them on a couple of their journeys, and on one of their journeys, he, for some reason, leaves. He quits, and we don't know why. And it causes a rift between them. But we get later indications that they were reconciled. Mark also hung around Peter. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 13, it tells us that Mark was with him when Peter was in Rome. So this gives us a clue that early church tradition confirms that Mark was Peter's interpreter, which makes this gospel, the gospel of Mark, primarily Peter's testimony. And you get hints of it when we're dealing with situations that particularly involve Peter. And you get hints of it when we see Peter's weaknesses highlighted and not really his strengths. All the, gospel, all the authors of the, of the Bible are humble. So it's likely that Mark wrote this gospel in the mid-50s, the first century. And when you consider all the timeline of the rest of the books of the New Testament, that's when it's most likely. 
A date of the mid-60s is also plausible. So we have Mark writing this book on behalf of Peter in the mid-50s. And early church history also suggests that Mark wrote to Gentile Christians in Rome. Knowing the audience of this gospel helps us understand it better. So how do we know he's writing to Gentile Christians in Rome? Well, first, based on just some lack of explanation of certain terms, places, and people. Like in verse 4, Mark just says John. He doesn't say John the Baptist. He doesn't explain who John the Baptist is. He knows his readers have some familiarity with the gospel story. And the fact that they are Romans also comes from clues throughout the book. Mark uses certain Latin phrases that he translates into Greek. And in chapter 13, he warns of persecution that's coming from Rome. And if that's relevant to the first century, there's only one known widespread persecution of Christians from Rome. That's from the Emperor Nero at the Roman church after Rome caught on fire. He blamed it on Christians. So, setting the stage of Mark. This is who the author is. He writes it to present Jesus clearly. He writes it to Gentile Christians in Rome, and he writes it on behalf of Peter, roughly the mid-50s. With that stage set, Mark knows he has to start somewhere. So we dive into verse 1. And we remember that Mark's purpose is to present a clear picture of Jesus. So his opening verse then sets a trajectory, not only just for this little section, it sets a trajectory for his whole book. Verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is this the beginning of? It's the beginning of the gospel. The word here is euangelion, literally means Good news. You've probably heard that before. This word used to announce a military victory. The beginning of good news. And this beginning of good news is, is not primarily about a, a set of truths or a set of ethical principles. This good news is about a person. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. I know Christ is not his last name. Christ is the title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, God's long-awaited servant who would usher in his kingdom. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This title here speaks of Jesus' deity. It speaks of his unique and special relationship to God the Father. And that relationship has always existed since eternity past. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is this Jesus who has come into the world. And Mark says that that's good news. So Mark unfolds the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. Not from the point of leading up to his birth, but from the point of leading up to his public ministry. So that beginning unfolds in three parts. First, we see Jesus' path is cleared. 
in verses 2 through 8. Secondly, we see Jesus is equipped and affirmed in verses 9 through 11. Finally, we see Jesus is tested in the final verses. First, Jesus' path is cleared. So he gets this kind of title, setting the trajectory, and where does he immediately turn? Where does Mark go? He goes to the Old Testament. He follows the Jewish pattern of naming the most important source of what he's going to quote, the, the book of Isaiah. And he actually weaves together three different Old Testament verses. Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 43, the last verse being the most important. All four Gospels quoted. And there are several striking things about starting off with the Old Testament, especially when he's writing to Christians who wouldn't be as familiar with the Old Testament. Notice that important phrase, as it is written. As it is written. Shows that this good news was not a backup plan. It was not an afterthought. This wasn't an escape valve for God's plan. It's always been the plan. And this plan was set, and it's a trend for the rest of Jesus' life, that Jesus will follow the Father's plan. And moreover, it shows us that the coming of Jesus is not Inconsistent. It's not incongruous with the Old Testament. It meshes together. It's one continuous story. It builds up to this point. Even Jesus says himself in Matthew 5, 17, that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill them. So maybe this year, will we grow in our confidence in the unity of God's word? That he has set out a plan of redemption and it has culminated and been fulfilled in Jesus. And what we see ourselves included in that redemption. So let us resolve practically to read the Bible with an aim to see that plan. But another striking thing about immediately quoting the Old Testament is that the verses quoted here. Notice the phrases, it says, prepare your way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. These phrases are originally directed to God. And now, they're directed towards Jesus. So not only does Jesus come on behalf of God himself, Jesus comes as God himself. So notice in verse 2, the messenger. He's made clear who he is in verse 4. John, otherwise known as John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. This role is set out for John to fulfill. John, we are told here, had an influential ministry. All people from Judea and Jerusalem are coming to see him. An influential ministry of baptism and preaching done in the wilderness. And the wilderness is not what we would think of in Northeast Ohio. It's not the woods. 
Uh, it's a barren land. It's seared by heat and wind in the southern part of Israel near the Dead Sea. And throughout the Old Testament, God's people, whether collectively as a group or even individually, the wilderness was a place where they experienced repentance and God's grace. And that pattern continues here. So people went out to the wilderness to get baptized by this guy who's got this really strange wardrobe and a really strange diet. And he's calling people to repent. How do we make sense of this? What does this all mean? Well, we read earlier, Malachi 4, 5, declares that God will send Elijah before the day of the Lord. So here we have John the Baptist dressed the same as Elijah, who preached in the same area as Elijah, and who preached the same message of repentance as Elijah, and later who Jesus will say came in the spirit of Elijah. So John the Baptist his significance is that something bigger is coming after him. And there's something unlike Elijah's mission here. John is calling more than repentance. He's calling the people something deeper than that. He's calling to prepare for the coming king. And people did this by repenting, by turning from their sin, and by turning in faith to the one in whom John proclaimed. The Messiah. Like the Israelites on Mount Sinai, who were prepared to enter into a covenant relationship with God by washing their clothes. The people here from Judea and Jerusalem are prepared to enter a new covenant with God through the Messiah, through the sign of baptism. They show their repentance and faith with this tangible sign. They show their repentance and faith in verse 5 by confessing their sins. So consider this group that comes out to the wilderness. All these people from Judea and Jerusalem who are repenting, they're confessing their sins, they're placing their faith in the one who's to come. It sets a pattern that this is how we would also come to Jesus, that we would repent of our sins, that we would confess our sins, and we would turn to the Lord to, for him to bear our sins. And notice the results of John's ministry. The result of John's ministry is a movement to repair the way of the Lord and exalt Jesus Christ. And that movement it could be seen and heard in tangible ways. And we see verses 7 and 8. John says that compared to the one after him, he's not even worthy to unstrap his sandal. This was a task that not even every slave would do. The most menial of tasks, John isn't worthy of Jesus. This is one who is mightier than John. This is one who would bring in a new age and the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that age. And long ago in the books of Ezekiel, the books of Joel, God had promised to pour out his spirit. And here what John is saying 
is that Jesus will pour out the Holy Spirit. So, the extent and the importance of John's ministry were great. In the book of Acts, Paul finds disciples of John all the way in Ephesus. So here we have southern Israel. He's got disciples all the way in modern-day Turkey. Jesus said that John was the most important of all the prophets. But as influential as John was, Jesus was more so. Jesus calls those from every nation, tribe, and tongue. For as important as John was, he was only the messenger. Jesus was his message. He is the real good news. John's ministry was temporary. What was coming was one who would bring an age that is permanent. So if you knew the end of the world was coming next month, or God forbid that your ending was coming next month, what would you do? If superhero movies reveal uh, people's desire for a savior, then end of the world apocalyptic movies or bucket list movies reveal people's knowledge that life is fragile and we don't often live like it. So this sentiment's captured well, not by a movie, but by a song, a really catchy country song uh, by Tim McGraw, Live Like You Were Dying. It's a conversation, from what I concern, this song, uh, this song between a dad and a son, a dad who got a fatal diagnosis, and he tells all the fun things he did when he got this diagnosis. He says he went skydiving. He went Rocky Mountain climbing. He went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Blue Manchu. He tells his son all the ways his relationships changed. He said he loved deeper. He spoke sweeter. He gave forgiveness that he's been denying. And the big point of this song is that he hopes that his son will one day get the chance to live like he was dying. The man is trying to wake up his son to a greater reality. And isn't that what John's doing here? Sure, there are maybe fun things you'd like to do before you die. There are good gifts to enjoy. There's work to be done. There's rest to be had. But doesn't it make a difference if you know that there's something more than this right now? What John's ministry teaches us about Jesus is that his arrival is not just good news. His arrival is urgent news. John helps us to see what is ultimately important. But we have a hard time seeing what's ultimately important. We want, we want comfort. And we are, we are often really busy. Not exactly urgent. Maybe it takes slowing down and praying and asking God Give us hearts that are more urgent. They give us hearts that are more compassionate to those around us, to those who even don't know Jesus. To give us hearts that are convinced 
that Jesus is worth sharing, that Jesus is worth living for. Friends, urgency matters. And it's not about us. It's about pointing to Christ like John. It's about focusing in on him. So the one who is mightier than John comes from the no-name town of Nazareth. And here we see the second movement in John's beginning of the good news. Jesus is equipped and affirmed. Jesus is equipped and affirmed. So Jesus from Nazareth comes to John to get baptized. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine Jesus comes to you and like, baptize me. Uh, I don't know if you know how this works, Jesus. I, I'm the one who points to you. Maybe you should be baptizing me. And gee, John is very reluctant to do this. We read in other Gospels, but Jesus insists. And at first blush, admittedly, it's confusing, right? John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. It means I have sins I'm going to turn from, and I'm going to place my faith and devotion and trust in the Lord. And Jesus is undergoing this baptism. What does that mean? Well, just at the beginning of Jesus' life, there's a reminder here of Jesus' mission. We read last week in Matthew 1, 21, that the angel Gabriel told Mary that Jesus will save his people from their sins. So we see here, at the onset of his ministry, we get a reminder of Jesus' mission that he'll state explicitly in chapter 10 that he will give his life as a ransom for many. So here he baptizes and he identifies with the sins of his people. And this proves to be a momentous occasion. And just as a side note, it proves to be a momentous occasion when what? Verse 10. When he comes out of the water. When he comes out of the water. You also see that the word baptize Literally, the best meaning of it is to dip, to fully immerse. So just as a side note, the understanding of baptism, the most clear understanding of baptism in the New Testament is immersion. As we see even here, Jesus is dunked and he comes out of the water in the River Jordan. Side by our side. It's a momentous occasion. And there are three things that happen that gives signs that Jesus is ushering in this new age. He's ushering in God's final eschatological kingdom that's being inaugurated. It's starting. The first, as he comes out of the water, the heavens tear open. And the text makes clear that this is visible. The heavens tear open. Who knows what this could have looked like? You know, I, I went out of the office the other day and, and looked at the parking lot, and there's snow, and the sun is just blinding because it's even brighter out when, it's, when snow's on the ground. Man, it's just a, a foretaste of what this could have been like. The heavens were torn open. 
And this same word, tore open, is used for other major events in the Bible. You see the Red Sea. The Red Sea was split open or torn open. See, in Zechariah 14, when he tells of the future day of the Lord, the Mount of Olives will be split into two. And we see later in this book, in Mark, when Jesus is crucified, the temple curtain will be split and torn from top to bottom, signifying that there is access through Christ to God for everyone. The heavens were torn open. It's a display of God's power that something big is happening here. As Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens were torn open and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. There are shadows here of the Lord's servant in the book of Isaiah. We read in Isaiah 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42 is even clearer. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So here, the spirit, as Jesus comes out of the water, not only serves to identify who Jesus is, he serves to equip and empower Jesus as he's going into his ministry. Finally, as Jesus is coming out of the water, the heavens are torn open, the spirit descends, and there's a voice from heaven. The voice of God the Father. The Father speaks, and he says, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Notice here is kind of another sidebar. We have clear evidence of the Trinity in this moment. We see the Son being baptized, the Spirit descending, and the Father speaks, all three existing at the same time, separately yet existing as one, the Trinity, right here at the baptism of Christ. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. Now there have been those before this declaration who have typified Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. God calls the nation of Israel his son in the book of Exodus. And later, as we read in Psalm 2, God calls Israel's king his son. But what were symbols of a reality is fully arrived in Jesus, the beloved son, the one and only son, the begotten son, not made. Where Israel and her kings fell short in their roles. Jesus does not. He's the fulfillment of complete obedience, the complete and unique relationship to God the Father has always existed in eternity past. So we step back and look at both of these events, the ministry of John and Jesus' baptism, this momentous event. We see a human confession from John the Baptist that Jesus is the Son of God. But we also see a divine confession and affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God. 
So then from the very beginning, this is how Mark wants, to, wants Jesus to be seen by his readers. Notice, moreover, that Jesus has done nothing to this point to earn this title. What has is, what is Mark recorded Jesus as of doing? Jesus is called the Son of God, not because he's done something, but because he is the Son of God. It's who he is. One commentator, he puts it like this. Jesus is not the Son of God because he does certain things. No, he does certain things because he is the Son of God. Who he is determines what he does, not vice versa. So it's like when, when you're 16 and you are finally allowed to drive a car. There's this glorious moment at the DMV. The, the ceiling tiles split open and the government worker descends, cascading roses and bestows on you the affirmation that you indeed are a licensed operator of a motor vehicle. And the analogy breaks down at some point because you weren't always able to drive. But here in that moment, that little rectangle piece of plastic doesn't make a teenager 16. And it doesn't magically make them able to drive. It affirms those things. And so here, there are no clear commands or imperatives to follow. Mark wants us to know something. And from the beginning of his book, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. And he wants us to know that that's good news. So in the world in which we live, there are many competing thoughts many different philosophies, even many different religions. And this reality leads most to believe that all those different things basically serve the same end. However, only biblical Christianity esteems Jesus rightly. And that's going to be the question on the Day of Judgment. We will see that we have fallen short of the glory of God by our actions, by how we have lived, by just who we are. And then the question will be, well, what do you, what do you think of Jesus? Here the answer is, he's the son of God. He is God in himself, equal to the Father who took on flesh with the mission to ransom his people from their sins. This is good news, friends, because only Jesus, who is God in himself, can bear the full wrath for sin of God himself. At the same time, it's good news because by putting on flesh, by putting on humanity, he can represent us. He can identify with us. He can stand in our place. 
So that, as Paul says, he is the one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So let us be resolved in 2018 to know God better. If we're going to know God better, then we should know Jesus better. Because Jesus is the full representation of God. He said that if you have seen him, that you have seen the Father. So let's pray not only that we would know him better, but also that we would have more confidence that he is who he says he is. And that this news would not just be relevant to us day to day, but that this news would be good to us from day to day. Well, we move on, and the pomp and circumstance of Jesus' baptism doesn't last very long. We come to the third movement. Jesus is tested. Jesus is tested. There's no lingering in the glory of baptism. There's no grand reception or banquet. Now, the Spirit descends and the Father affirms because Jesus has a mission, but that mission has an adversary. Satan, the fallen angel, the serpent of old, whose name literally means adversary. Jesus has a mission to save his people from their sins. But we see in 1 John, Jesus also came to destroy the works of the devil. So we read in verse 12 that the same spirit who descended on Jesus at his baptism drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit is with Jesus to empower and equip him for ministry, but now he's going to allow Jesus to be tested and prepared for his ministry. But here again is another quandary. Jesus is, goes out and is tempted by Satan. But the natural question is then, could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? Well, here are a few things that we know. We know three things. One, that Jesus never actually sinned. That's not up for debate. And this passage, even here, affirms that. That Jesus did not sin when tempted by Satan. Two, we know that Jesus was tempted, and this testing here is genuine. We read also of that in Hebrews 4. He is like us, but even he underwent temptations unique to him as being the son of God. Right? Uh, Satan tempts him to turn rocks into bread. In Gethsemane, he, he's wrestling with what it means to bear the sins and to bear the wrath of God, something that category is not even applicable to us. So the testing is genuine, but his temptations are unique. And unlike us, Jesus has no predisposition to sin. He has no desire for it. And naturally, therefore, he, he recoils at the prospect of disobeying his father. But third, we know from James 1.13 that God cannot be tempted with evil. So as the Son of God, it is in Jesus' nature to willingly and gladly obey 
the Father. He is one with the Father. He always carries out his works. He is God in himself. And therefore, friends, could Jesus have sinned? I would argue no. Because he is God himself, he cannot sin. And yet, he became human. He legitimately suffered. He legitimately endured Satan's attacks. He could not have failed, and he did not fail. His success here, his success here in the wilderness with Satan is merely a preview of his success at the cross. So that here at the onset of his ministry, he shows that for certain his mission will be accomplished. He shows that for certain redemption will be secured. He shows that he is the true and better Adam. He shows that he succeeded where Israel failed. He shows that he is greater than the adversary. Let this victory assure you that God will succeed and has succeeded in Christ. There's been, there's been a lot of bad news in 2017. You could argue at this moment our country is as divided as it's ever been. We see that evidence in events like Charlottesville. We've seen natural disaster after natural disaster in 2017. Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. We've seen fires in California. In 2017, we've seen shootings. Shootings at a, at a church. Shooting at a concert in Las Vegas. 2017, we've seen missile launches from a, a dictator who is bent to do anything. 2017, we've seen institutions and people unravel because sexual abuse is unmasked. In 2017, there's been a lot of bad news. But this good news remains. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He cannot fail. He did not fail. And he will not fail. So this is the beginning. The story of Jesus Let's pray. Lord, as Mark does in his gospel, would we clear away distractions? Will we set aside time to take inventory of our lives and focus in on Jesus? to see and to contemplate that he is, in fact, good news. To understand and to have confidence that he is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, and that this is good news. 
that he did not think equality of, with God was something to be grasped or, or held onto, but he stepped off his throne and humbled himself, even to the point of a cross, to ransom us from our sins. This Jesus. Oh Lord, help us to follow you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.